One of the um, one of the aspects of going to one service that I'm looking forward to, and and I understand it could be a short lived experiment. Uh, experiment. People may come back, and we have too many people in the room, and that's a great problem to have. We're not going to turn anybody away. We'll go back to two services. But one of the things that I'm looking forward to is um, uh, not having to coordinate the differences between, are you going to be here for first service or second service? We want to do this thing or we want to say this thing and we don't know if you're going to be here. One of the examples of that is that we are going to be sending um, uh, some folks, some very special, very important people from our church to another church and we'll be praying with them in the second service uh, to send them along, and we don't get to do that here. So there's another example of some of the ways in which we'll be able to combine as a family and participate in uh, in, in some of the same things. Um, that family are, are the Bacons, and anytime you lose bacon, it's a bad day. And so um, we want to um, acknowledge them and celebrate them and send them because they are going to fill a need in our dear sister church in Solon, Maine, where Pastor Ben had gone to pastor and he has uh, decided to move on from that church. And uh, they um, uh, very, what's the word I'm looking for? Very agreeable to us, I guess. They have approached the Bacons, Blaine in particular, and asked if they would consider coming to that church and that he would be the interim pastor with a view towards being the um, the new senior pastor there. And uh, so, so he came to us and asked us our thoughts and sought the guidance and the wisdom of the leadership team here, and we couldn't be more thrilled, both for the Bacon family and for Solon, because we believe that Solon is just, if you've had any interaction with that church there, it's just, uh, it's a great country church, it's uh, humble, it's loving, it's uh, moving and growing, and, and they have that incredible ministry there for the uh, women's, minist- uh, women's uh, shelter. And there's just a lot of great things, and we've always had great contact with with that ministry and appreciate them dearly. We've had some folks leave from here when Pastor Ben went up there, and they let us know, hey, look, we want to go support them, and they've made incredible improvements and just put their their time in and all that kind of stuff. And so it's been a great relationship, and we're excited that we think that it's going to get only stronger because um, we still have uh, people that we have great love and affection for and great contact with that are going to be leading that church. Um, Blaine Bacon is um, someone who has spent um, time in ministry in in a part-time basis um, way back in the day before I even knew him. And uh, most of you would know him to be one of our um, tall members of our security team. And uh, their offspring are even taller and uh, so we've often said that, um, you know, the reason why we have great security here is because we have what like the Old Testament would call like the sons of Anak and everything. We have all these giants in the land. And uh, so that served us very well. But uh, just incredible, special people. You know, Sandy uh, from the leadership with the Night to Shine and how she puts so much time and organization into that. And so we aren't losing Sandy. I said, Blaine, the only way we'll support your endeavors going to Solid is if we get to keep Sandy for Night to Shine. And so he assured us, she assured us um, that that will be the case. And so we'll still be having that um, leadership going forward. Um, my understanding is that this is the last Sunday they'll be with us officially. I think there's a Sunday in the beginning of July that they'll be back to visit with us, but they'll be starting up there um, next week, I believe. And so this is our opportunity to say goodbye to them today. So I thought I'd inform you. We'll take a moment and pray for them. And then we will, um, you know, be looking for ways to support them. As always, when Pastor Ben went up there, sometimes our people would say, hey, you know, I'm going to take the Sunday off from faith because I want to go up to Solon and just, and we encourage that. We don't want to see you. You can't stay, but you can visit for encouragement. So um, let's take some time and pray for them before we get into God's word. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for the opportunities that you give your people to expand their horizons, to challenge themselves in ministry. I want to thank you, Lord, for the fact that you continue to use faith as a sending uh, church, that we are continuing to raise up leaders. And Lord, that isn't necessarily by some great design, but it's only by your mercy that this continues to happen. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to remain faithful in that area, help us to continue to move in that direction. But today, Lord, 
We pray specifically for a hand of blessing on the Bacon family and the people of Solon. Pray, Lord, that this would be an incredible marriage for a long-term future. uh, Both ends of that equation will get to know each other very well and to be a blessing in each other's lives. We pray for Blaine and Sandy's rest and recovery. Know, Lord, that they will have a lot of things to juggle, maintaining their their day jobs and then leading this church and things like that. So we pray, Lord, for their stamina. We pray, Lord, for their wisdom. We pray, Lord, again, that they would lead by the natural compassion that we know that they have. We pray, Lord, that the people of Solon will feel loved and welcomed and that their pastor and his wife will as well. And so we just pray, God, for incredible blessings. We look forward, Lord, to seeing that develop and hearing uh, as a church body all that you're doing there. So, Lord, lead us in the way of support. Lead us in the way of uh, encouragement as those days go on. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, I know it's been said a lot of different ways, and I even hesitated to open the message this way just because it seems so cliche, but, but the time that is spent, or the time that we have spent over the last year plus, Pastor Tom referenced some of this in his announcements and everything, has been a greatly fatiguing season. It's been a wearing season on our souls. And even though we are experiencing more freedoms and we're starting to see each other's faces, which was pretty awesome this morning, I'd forgotten that we smile at each other when we come here. This is great. But even with all of that, I think we're still yet to discover or to feel the depths of the toll that this season has taken on us as a people. And I'm not just referring to us here at faith as a church, but just mankind in general who are, were created and designed to share life together. And, and some have fooled themselves into thinking they've mastered the art of isolation over the years, even pre COVID. But the, the reality is we were designed to exist with other people. We have been led, especially God's people, we've been led to live our lives for other people. And we know that that is easiest done or best done in a close context, in a way that we see each other, we touch each other, we move through life together. And in so many ways, because we were learning how to do this, that was really taken from us and we didn't know where to go next. I think the reality is that this season has has um, shed a light on the issues of our hearts and the brokenness of our soul. And, and some didn't need COVID in order for that to be on display. We know that there are people in our lives that kind of wear their brokenness on their sleeves or even to the extreme where we see them in a street corner somewhere kind of shouting off things that we would consider crazy and just unchecked and stuff. And that there's brokenness sometimes on great display and it's not a mystery to us that there's issues there is how we would think about it. But for some of us that aren't as, as, um, uh, oblivious, if you will, to our surroundings, or for some of us that keep our challenges and our issues a little closer to our vest, then, then we've, we've figured out perhaps how to do that. And then something like COVID and, and shutdown and isolation comes and we start being surprised with how little we're able to keep control of some of these things, how it's starting to surprise us, how it's just boiling to the surface. And we say things like, yeah, I thought I was better than this. What's my problem here? The reality is we are broken people. We were broken people before a pandemic. And we're certainly going to experience different levels of brokenness in its wake. There are two questions that I'd like for us to consider this morning. And the first is, how do you love a broken person? This is the call. If you're here this morning, I'm not, I'm not saying everybody that's in this room is all in when it comes to matters of faith or, or following Jesus Christ, but most of us are. So there's a calling on our lives. How are we going to love the broken person. But I think the second question is more applicable to all of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum of our allegiance to the Lord or our following Jesus Christ. And that is, how did Jesus love the broken person? Because the news flash is that whether or not you're the person holding the sandwich board down on the street corner, yelling and sputtering out crazy things, or you're the person that seems to have it all together. The reality is, is that you and I are all broken people and Jesus comes to the broken in a very particular way. And we need to understand what that way is so that we can do business with that approach. 
This is what Jesus says of himself. He's quoting, he was quoting Isaiah 61.1 when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the poor. He has sent me to bind up. That means to, to, to mend together, to hold together, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus MO in coming to this life was to reach you and I who were broken and handicapped with all that was going on inside of us. He said, I came for that reason. So it shouldn't surprise us that every one of his actions moves towards that goal. And that's what we've been studying in John, uh, in the, in the gospel of John is the actions of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus Christ. We have been saying for a long, long time, I believe it's a quote from Benjamin Franklin, but I always get these uh, founding father quotes wrong. Someone will come and challenge me on this later. But I think Benjamin Franklin is the one that kind of originated this phrase, God helps those who help themselves. That's not anywhere in the scriptures, though it's been claimed to be in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves because a closer study or an examination of the gospel or to see the movement of God would actually reveal that God helps those who can't help themselves. That's exactly what we're going to see on display as we examine our text today. When we come to John chapter 5, a a corner is turned here because the opposition is now going to start heating up against Jesus. It's nice that he did the, the, the miracle at the wedding. It's great that he turned the water into wine in terms of the popularity of it. People like that. Nicodemus had a one-on-one encounter with Jesus and, and Jesus got him to see that all that, all that he lived his life for, for religion and law and being a good person was going to fall short. He needed to be born anew in the spirit. That was well received because it's one-on-one. This man goes off and tries to figure out how to move forward in life with his newfound allegiance to the Lord. And then we saw the, we had a kind of a, a drone level view, if you will, of the conversation he had with the woman at the well. And she goes off and tells her, her people back in, uh, in, in her town, Hey, I found the guy who told me everything I did and look how my life's changed. And there was, it was well received. She was able to bring a crowd back. Everything's kind of moving towards this idea of, we like this guy. This is going well for us. Not so much anymore. John chapters five through 10 is where we see the opposition, uh, towards Jesus message really, really cranking up now. Because Jesus is going to boldly declare that he is God and that he's going to begin to or continue to demonstrate his authority over everything. He's now setting the stage for, yes, you believe in God, you should also believe in me because I am he. And also everything that's been created is is subject to me. Incredible claims. This isn't going to go down well with a lot of people. So it's important for us to understand or to know that the next stop in our narrative is not some accident. Jesus isn't just stepping in it. He didn't say, oh, I pushed it a little too far. I was having this good run. The popularity was growing. And then I went and and did this with the wrong crowd. Instead, I kind of, as I was studying this week, I was picturing the scene in Braveheart where the two sides are facing each other and William Wallace is just cranked up and anxious. He knows where this needs to go. He knows what needs to happen and nothing's happening. So he gets on the horse and he starts pacing around. People are like, where are you going? What are you doing? He's like, I'm going to go peck a fight. I worked on my Scottish all week. This, Jesus, in a sense, is mounting a horse saying, it's time to go peck a fight. That's what he's going to do. And we get to watch it. All right, chapter five, beginning of verse one. Let's set the stage here. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the feast isn't mentioned for us here. Typically, if we have the name of the feast, we can actually get a little bit of a Bible study clue. If the name of the feast is there, then the events that Jesus is gonna do might have something to do with portraying or picturing or fulfilling that feast. We don't have a name of the feast here. So John is basically saying to us, the festival that he's going to isn't really related in terms of its imagery to what's about to happen. So we can move on. Verse two, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
So the setting here is that there are multitudes of people gathered kind of uh, because of, of being forced to because of their physical condition and their ailments and things. They're kind of laying around and they're crowded and kind of on top of each other and everything. And so you can just imagine the setting here of, of thinking, does this seem or feel pleasant? Does this seem like the kind of place that you want to go down to on your Saturday to get a coffee or anything? This is, ironically, Bethesda is it means a house of that's the beth part bethesda is a house of mercy but the the setting here and the and the situation that people are forced to kind of gather around and not having the help and the assistant and assistance and not having the equipment that we have today and all these other sorts of things instead it's more like a house of misery and it's just it's it's just gloomy and depressing Jesus says, that's where I need to be. There are the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. They're at a pool that was used for washing down sheep before sacrifice. And so they're sharing this water, if you will, with what the animals have been washed down in. And But I don't know if you noticed, if you're reading along in your scriptures or um, if you if you see this, um, when you come to verse three, it says in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. If you go one more verse down, most of your Bibles will go to verse five. Verse four is missing. So there's a reason for this, and I think an excellent reason for this, but I'm going to share with you the verse that is missing. If you're reading from a King James Bible, for instance, it used transcripts to translate the Bible that have since been, the earlier manuscripts have been found to not include verse 4. And so, again, I think there's good reason for this. We're going to detour just for a second to look at this because I think there's an interesting point to be made. This is what verse four says in the King James Version Bible. It says, for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water or stirred the water. You can kind of picture this hand of an angel kind of whipping it around like a whirlpool. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. When when you see a verse or when you see something in the scriptures or you hear something about the way God does a certain thing, you're better informed when you understand the totality or the, the entire context of God's word. If you're in a, a habit or you're starting to or trying to read through the scriptures cover to cover, one of the benefits you have is that when you see things that sound a little sketchy, or you see things like, I'm not sure if that's what God would do. You start to get a fuller picture of who God is because you've seen how he's worked through the years. You've seen what he's done through the people. I come to a verse like verse 4 and I go, does, does that sound right? Does this sound like something that God would do? That he would say, I'm going to send an angel down to this pool. There are tons of people lying around unable to help themselves. And I'm going to give them one shot every so often. And if they don't make it, if they don't stammer or clamor over each other or push their way out, if they're not the first ones in, they don't get the healing for that day. So he sends the angel to kind of do the lottery swirl and he gets the waters moving. And so they're going to rush forward with a panic as best as they can. You, you see from the list, there's a lot of hindrances for them to be first in the pool. And, and, and you start to think, is that how God would have operated? So, frankly, it gives me a lot of comfort to discover that that verse shouldn't be included in the scriptures. But what it seems to be indicating, because we see it from the rest of the text, is that's what the people believed to be happening. That's why they would stay by the pool for days on end. There was no, there was no uh, um, uh, predictability to the stirring of the waters. And it, it turns out that this pool area is being fed by a spring. And so every so often a natural occurrence would happen and stir the waters up and would cause a commotion. And people would ascribe that to must be the hand of the angel doing its thing. Now, I don't know where the, um, uh, the expectation or the proof, if you will, that the first one in would be healed, but we've seen enough in our day, haven't we, to understand that we will believe what we want 
We will look for that which we believe and we will make a case for it and everything. So who knows where that all started, that the first one in is the one who gets healing. But what I love about the fact that this is a verse that is omitted from uh, most of our texts is it says, this isn't the way that God would have operated, but it is the thing that was truly believed and expected in that time. We don't have to go very far to see how people will throw themselves at superstitions. We have a whole lot of people that are believing kind of everything they're seeing as they go down the rabbit hole in the last year or so. There's lots of things that if, if we just open our minds up to something, we look for it and it starts showing up everywhere. And I think that's what's happening here. And who can blame them? This is their one shot to get well, to get whole, to be healed of their ailment or their infirmity. And so they're gathered there, regardless of the poor conditions, regardless of the, of, of the situation that they're in. And this is the space that Jesus goes to find people. He's going to what is called the house of mercy, but to show mercy in what is really functioning like a house of misery. What I want us to see, I want us to see two things here this morning as we start moving forward in our text is that people are thoroughly broken. Some of that break we can see on the outside. It's very, very clear. I think the people that are here in this pool represent those obvious ailments that we would say, okay, there's something wrong there and they could use some help. But all, not all of those breaks are visible, and so we are seeing that more and more of those are becoming visible. So people are thoroughly broken is the first thing I want us to see. But I also want us to see as we move forward in the text that Jesus loves thoroughly broken people. So let's get into our text in verse 5. The reason why he was there. So verse 5 says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. We're not told that he was at the pool for 38 years. It says he's, he's had this problem for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, it really, it's not, we would think, you know, rabbi, teacher, Jesus didn't have an entourage. He didn't show up announced. This guy doesn't know Jesus from anybody. So it might as well have been like, dude, Jesus is like, do you want to be healed? And this guy's like, Come on, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So Jesus, in a sense, by saying, well, let's forget the whole pool thing, says, well, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Uh, the Jesus question is, is he has two very critical statements here. And the first one is in the form of a question. He's asking a guy who for 38 years has been troubled with this, um, with this ailment. And he says, so do you want to be well? No, no, not at all. You ever asked a question that you're just like, why did I say that? No kidding. You know, is it hot enough for you? Somebody's underneath their car fixing it. Got a problem? Nope. Just getting that sound louder because I like to hear it rumble. I don't know. This would, we could easily pin that on Jesus at first and kind of say, why would he ask such a question? Why would he ask a guy who is obviously um, infirmed? Why would we ask somebody who has put the effort in to have him himself dropped off at the place where this healing is believed to take place? Do you want to get well? This really is a test to see if he really wants what he says he wants, I think. This this isn't some inference that you and I need to want it, that healing, that whatever Jesus could do, that you and I need to want it bad enough. This is what I love about this story is it disproves so many of the things that you and I have heard over the years about the reason why you're not well, the reason why you're not healed is because you didn't believe hard enough. And I've been saying the last couple of weeks, we feel like we have to squint our faces and we have to just sweat it out. That we've got to believe that Jesus is and we put all of this pressure on us to be the, the, the catalyst for our own healing or well-being or whatever the movement is that Jesus wants to do in our lives. This guy was, a, was passively just sitting by the wayside 
And, and just as a spoiler alert, we're not going to get any of that satisfactory, uh, satisfying response from this guy that we want Jesus to have. We all know him. He's the great healer, the great physician. He's the son of God. Show the man some respect, right? That's what we're going to want. This guy's not going to give us any of that. Jesus is saying, do you want to get well? So that he has to face a few things. Of course I want to get well. Well, do you really? You understand your life will change the instant you're up on your own two feet moving around. What's expected of you? What do you how are you going to provide for yourself? When, when you don't have, and this isn't picking on anybody that does this. This is making a, a clear point about how your life will change. Nobody is going to have the same kind of compassion on you that they've had because now you're up and moving around. Do you have a plan? What changes for you going forward? So when I say, do you want to get well? Think about it before you say yes. We present physical, we present emotional brokenness, but I think this question also gets to our deeper problem, which is our spiritual infection, which is the sin that plagues us all. So when Jesus is saying, do you want to get well? He didn't say, do you want your legs to work? He could be saying, do you want to be whole, completely whole? Can Jesus fix the legs without fixing the rest? Absolutely. But the question is deeper. Do you want to get well? Do you really want all of life to be restored? Do you want eternal life to be given to you? It touches our deepest problem. Isaiah 59 says that the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, our our uh, missing the mark, our uh, offenses to the holy God have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We know that the scriptures tell us that the stuff that we have on the outside, the things that we say to one another, the things that we do, all that sort of come from a place from the inside. That, that if, if the root system of the tree is bad, it produces bad fruit. Mark 7, Jesus says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all these things, the evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they're the things that defile us. But complete healing, an answer to that question, if we were to say, yeah, I want to be made well, it really is more often involved than what we want or what we ask for. That guy was thinking, today might be the day I finally get in the pool first. I'm going to get wet. I'm going to come out able to walk and I'll move on and figure out life from there. Jesus is offering him something much deeper and something much more complete. And of course, he's not seeing it because he didn't go looking for it. What would need to change if the Lord took away our brokenness? Now, it's, it's one thing for us to picture what's going on with the, the person with the physical infirmity that's right out there and everyone can see it and everyone knows that's what he's troubled with. But you and I have those things that we've become to, we started to lean on like a crutch because it's our identity. It's the thing that has caused us suffering or heartache or hurt or any of those kinds of things. And even though we would have never wanted to go through with it, and, and even though we would never have wanted it to happen to us or that something that we did that we've uh, had a hard time moving on from or any of those things, if Jesus said to you, do you want me to get rid of this? More than anything. Are you sure? Because it's going to change the way that you talk to people in your small group from here on out. It's going to change the way that you uh, see yourself as you look in the mirror and all these things. It's going to give you a new hope. It's going to give you a new responsibility to start working with other people who had the same hangups and the same issues and things. And you're going to be, you're going to be asked and called upon now to raise them up. Are you sure you want to be made well? Because your life's about to change. These are things that we need to take inventory of because this is the work that Jesus does. Because he heals by the measure of his ability not the measure of our faith. This guy was giving Jesus nothing in return. Do you want to be made well? Well, I mean, what am I going to do about it? 
Every time I come here, someone jumps in front of me. I don't have anybody helping me out. You almost wonder if people have offered his assistance to him before and he's just kind of, he's weathered and he's cranky and he's not happy. I don't get a picture of a really nice guy here. I have a heart for his brokenness, but I'm not really impressed with his personality. I don't know if you can see this, but if not, you will in a minute. Jesus isn't getting any of that response. This isn't a man who's stepping out in faith. I've believed you from a distance or what we saw from the noble man saying, you know, go, your son is made well. Okay, I'll head back. My son must be okay because Jesus said it. This guy isn't giving Jesus any of that. Jesus still can heal him. Stand up, take up your bed and walk. So how does Jesus love thoroughly broken people? And this is where we start to get into. So again, to set the setting, we're going to finish up verse 9. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. We should hear the music. Dun, dun, dun. That means somebody's going to say what Jesus did was a no-no. Or what this guy did was a no-no. That day was the Sabbath, high, holy sort of um, uh, ritual every every seventh day. You don't lift a finger. You don't do anything. You take the day off, that kind of thing. And Pastor Gary's going to help us with what all of this means next week. Um, and he's going to explain everything the Bible's ever said about the Sabbath. Pastor Gary, does that help you out? He's not going to have to do that. I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to put pressure on him. That day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Put that thing back down. Go back and act crippled. It's pretty much what they're saying. If you've ever been offended by the way somebody has treated somebody else, man, this, I, I read this and I can't help but be steamed every time I'm reading it. Like, how blind do you have to be that this guy for 38 years has been suffering like this? Somebody finally fixes him in an instant and they say, oh, you should have waited till tomorrow. What's your problem? Put that bed back down. You're not supposed to lift that. He's like, lift. I haven't been able to hold myself up for 38 years and I'm standing. I'm, how do you not see this? But he answered them. Uh, it, it, you know, I don't, it wasn't my fault. He said, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I, didn't, I wasn't even a willing participant in this. He just healed me before I got anything out of my mouth. They asked him, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed didn't even know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. I mean, this guy has, for 38 years, been waiting. Somebody comes by and says, get up. Okay. Who did that? I don't even know. He came and went. He's gone already. He had disappeared. There was a crowd in the place. So verse 14, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well happy you hear a violin see you're well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you dun 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 (laughs) this is mood change constantly back and forth and jesus says sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you the man went away and told the jews that it was jesus who had healed him he goes back and says oh by the way i found the guy who fixed my entire life the one that you're angry at it's right over there a little bit of a shady character or clueless, perhaps not really getting it. Or maybe they were just so under the thumb of these religious leaders that they're like, I don't want any of this heat on me. Yeah, I'm thankful that I, I mean, Jesus did find him in the temple. So maybe after his healing, he went and did sort of the obligatory uh, thankfulness, paid his alms, that kind of thing and said, OK, this is great. Lord's seen seen it through. But he wasn't really. He wasn't really adopting the whole thing. This, this healing on the inside may not have really taken place. He went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. The language is that they were continually over and over and over again haunting him, hunting him down. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It wasn't for any other reason other than he wasn't doing their law. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. Again, commentary, verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Now, there's a lot in this text that, again, that Pastor Gary is going to revisit. So we're only looking at one angle this week. And the angle that we're working on is Jesus' interaction with this man who needed to be healed. So how did Jesus love this thoroughly broken person, this guy who was so broken, even on the inside, that he didn't show the proper respect or thankfulness or even loyalty to the one who healed him? Jesus, it told us back in verse 6 that he saw him that he noticed him, that Jesus saw this man and studied him or in his, in, his, uh, in his God-like quality able to say, this guy's been at this for a while. This has been plaguing him for a long time. Jesus saw him and noticed him. It doesn't take a rocket scientist for us to understand that that's what we do so little of is that we notice people that are, have, have an ailment or, or some particular handicap or there's some there somehow not just caught up to our pace in society or our standing. What do we have a tendency to do? We, we look over them. We do this all the time with somebody that's asking for money and I'm not arguing for the wisdom of just throwing cash at somebody who's maybe making lots of money each day doing this thing or anything. That's not even the point. But what do we do? We kind of do one of these sort of like, uh, uh, and by the time I haven't found what I know I don't have in my pocket, I've already passed by. Uh, we don't notice. We don't see them. In 1952, Mother Teresa found a woman dying in the streets, half eaten by rats and ants, with no one to care for her. She picked her up and took her to the hospital, but nothing could be done. Realizing that there were many others dying alone in the streets, Mother Teresa opened within days Nirmal Haridei, which means pure heart, a home for the dying. In the first 20 years alone, over 20,000 people were brought there, half of whom died knowing the love of the missions of charity, missionaries of charity. Nirmal Haridei is where one dying man lying in the arms of Mother Teresa after being plucked from the gutters and bathed and clothed and fed told her, I have lived like an animal, but now I am dying like an angel. This is what she says. She says, the greatest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feeling of being unwanted, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. Loving the broken begins with how you see them. Some of us would have to admit that we have various prejudices or various concerns or fears, or we're intimidated by the overwhelming um, aspect of the circumstances. I don't even know how to help this person. Where would I begin? I obviously can't see it all the way through. I can't fix everything that's broken with them. Or perhaps it's just inconvenient because I'm living my best life now and I don't have time to be reminded that other people don't have it going so well. Or maybe I have overwhelming amounts of judgment. You know, if it wasn't for their whatever, they wouldn't be in this condition. How often do we say, just go get a job? Loving the broken begins with how we see them. That's what Jesus did. He noticed him. He saw him. But he also pursued him. The scriptures told us that afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you're well. Jesus slips away. And then he says, how am I going to find that? And he rounds back around after the heat's off a little bit and finds him and locks in personally with him and says, let's celebrate this. You're well, you're up and running, you're moving around. Isn't this amazing? Shows the love of Jesus to, to share this with him, that he wasn't just some prop that Jesus needed in order to accomplish something with. That he cared about him. He pursues him. And as we said, he's pursuing a man that he knows he's not going to get the credit from. He's not going to get a thank you from. He's going to get the fine how do you do by telling the authorities, that's the guy who did this to me. Go get him. Doing good things for the reward of appreciation is the best indicator that you didn't do it for God or the broken person, but for yourself. I've told you before that one of my pet peeves is every time they ask somebody in the news or they interview them or something like, why did you do this? Why are you giving your life or your time or something? And the first thing they say is, it makes me feel good. It's not a denial. My angst over that isn't a denial that serving others and loving others does make us feel good. And I think that's one of the great blessings that the Lord gives us because he could remove that feeling and say, well, you should just do it because you should. 
You're not getting anything out of this, but it does. It causes us a, a little bit extra motivation. It causes us some pleasantness to be able to say, I served well today. My head goes down on the pillow a little bit easier because I know that. But if that's my motivation, if I'm giving myself to these things, doing the right things because of the immediate payoff, and then I run into a guy like this and he doesn't give me any of that satisfaction, people in our medical careers, uh, in our medical environments and stuff run into this all the time. And the best of them have come to understand that sometimes it's the pain talking or it's the fear talking or it's those things that, that are maybe blocking them from being a kinder, nicer, more appreciative person. Or maybe that person just never learned those things and expects and demands it of you. And yet they continue to do the good work anyway. But Jesus was honest with him. He knew there was something to clear up in this guy. So he finishes that sentence. See, you're well. Isn't this great? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's like, give the guy a break. 38 years. He's finally able to run and jump around. And Jesus has to throw in this downer by saying, don't waste this. And there's some indication that he might be saying, don't get yourself in the same uh, uh, problem that you did 38 years ago that landed you in this condition. Don't go and sin more and get something worse happening to you. This is, I think, is the second uh, big statement that Jesus is making to him. Is he just piling it on? There's possibilities here. We can interpret this. If we overinterpret it, I think we could say, well, then all illness, whatever we feel or experience is a result of our sin. He must have, he must have done what all of us do. We made a, we messed up when we were 15 or we messed up when we were eight or something like that. And eventually the cancer came and caught up with me. So he's punishing me for that thing I did all back then. Is this illness a result specifically each and every time of my sin? And the rest of scripture would not allow us to entertain that thought much longer. We understand from, from the balance of scripture that God doesn't do a one-to-one correlation. You messed up, you will pay for it in your body. That's the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus came to tip the balance of the scales opposite of what we deserve. That he would come and take the weight and the pain and all of those things of the things that we have done to others, that we have done as an offense to God. And he says, I will carry that. So he's not walking around going, I wonder when I'm going to make them pay for that. He paid for it in Jesus. Which doesn't mean that we'll never pay the penalty of some effects on this earth of our sin, but the ultimate penalty of it, the weight of it, the punishment that comes from those earlier sins is not on us, it's on him. A second possibility may exist that maybe he's saying, don't go and sin now that you're able to live the life you've been dreaming about for 38 years. If I catch you in the disco and you're moonwalking, you're like, hey, ladies, check out the new legs. You know, that's probably brewing towards some problem. You're probably going to find yourself in other forms of hot water again because you haven't taken the gift and used it wisely. Instead, you've taken the gift or the healing, or whatever you've gone out and expanded it on, uh, spent it on your, on your lust. And so there's, could be some of that. But I think from, from the total makeup of this man's demeanor, I think the, um, the pointedness of Jesus' words to him that he doesn't say to everybody he heals, Although he often says your sins are forgiven and don't go and sin anymore, but Jesus is tying it directly to this man's healing. I think there is a point to where he's helping this man understand you did something, say 38 years ago or something that got you in this position, your own sin, and you've been paying the price for it. I've just lifted that burden and that price off of you. Don't go and, and find yourself in similar hot water. And you would have to think that if this man who isn't showing all this great respect and appreciation or admiration that he just encountered the son of God might pause and go, how did he know that? How did he know that what I've been going through for 38 years is a result of me being an idiot or something like that? And there's biblical precedent for us paying at least in this life sometimes for some of these things. King David even said as a result of his own sin in Psalm 38, he says, there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. 
My iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. Over and over, David would, would recount the burden that comes over his body as a result of his sin. And while he was harboring his sin with Bathsheba, and he wouldn't admit it or confess it and everything, he was writing in the Psalms that he was laying out a list that seems like a modern medical journal. If you look at the list and everything, it's like, you know, and, and I have these um, night sweats and these terrors and these palpitations and all these things that we would, would look at as panic attacks and all the things that we could say in our modern uh, medicine era now, we would recognize as the result of hanging on to your sin or conducting sin or, or something that comes back to, ta- have to, p- to make you pay a terrible price within your body for having done so. But Jesus is saying, Go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. Yes, Mr. By the Poolside. Yes, Mr. 38 Years. Yes, Mr. Sell Me Out to the Religious Authorities. There are worse things than returning to the physical state that I found you in. There are worse things than even suffering the mental anguish that comes from all of these things. The scripture tells us in Romans 6, the wages of our sin is our impending death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There are worse things than what we experience on this earth. And, and mister, as I heal you, please hear this, that if you go and sin, if you don't turn to the Lord and receive his mercy, worse things await you. And these worse things are things that we don't often talk about, but the scripture speaks very clearly about a place called hell that was, yes, reserved for the devil and his angels. That was the intent of its place, but that anybody who violates the law of God and doesn't receive the payment of Jesus Christ needs to be seen as guilty and sent to a real place called hell. Jesus, in his mercy and his compassion for this poor ailing man, instead of spending lots of time saying, well, he's had 38 years. I'm going to let him enjoy it. We'll come back to this later. He deals with his worst condition now. Don't let something worse happen to you. Jesus is actually being merciful to him. He cared enough to speak truth to him. Now, sometimes I I try to, Think about how you might hear that. And I know there are some of you that would, that would brag about being blunt truth tellers. And you hear a statement like that, that it's merciful to be truthful to people. And you're like, that's what I've been doing my whole life. If I see something out of sorts or see something I don't like, or there's something that's not right, I tell them like it is. But if you see how Jesus does all of this from start to finish, even with somebody who you and I might write off and say, this guy's not in this. He, he doesn't appreciate this. Why am I wasting my time? Jesus still uh, approaches him with incredible compassion. He, fix, he fixes his most urgent physical need, which gives him the gateway to speak truth into his heart. So those of you that are blunt truth tellers who pride yourselves on being able to just tell it like it is, please understand that until you learn to mix some of that ability with a tremendous amount of compassion, it will not have the desired effect. Others of you lead so much with compassion and that you, you care so much for the well-being of other people that to say something that harsh, something that direct, oh, I just can't put salt on the wound. I could never say something like that. Both sides, both extremes of this are guilty of not loving a person enough. That's what we're always teetering between. We're always feeling that tension of how do I show love the best in this situation? Some of us need to grow in our ability to speak truth to one another because we have a tendency to hide behind our kindness because we don't want to offend them. If you really look below the surface of that, who you're really serving and protecting is you. And that's just the reality of it. Or if you are more the type of person who doesn't mind coming in with the hammer and telling somebody exactly what they need to hear and you're going to be as harsh and direct without earning access to their heart, then you also are just as guilty of doing it for your own well-being to get something off your chest to feel like you've done your part as opposed to what the person's ready for or understands. We would... As we see this story playing out, as we see how Jesus pursues this person, as we see how he sees them... We start to think, well, with all this brokenness around me, Lord, we cry out like the worship song that we so often sing, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. 
There's so much that breaks our hearts and there's so much that's overwhelming and we can't fix all of this. I love the subtle little vision that comes out of that story with Mother Teresa. You notice how she didn't seem to put any burden on herself to, 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 on herself to heal these people and protect them from death. She saw, I have a very narrow niche mission here and that's so that people don't die alone. She knew she couldn't turn back the tide that the tens of thousands of people that were dying on her watch. She said, my, my goal is to make it so that I can at least provide this service. This is what you and I need to do more creatively. We get overwhelmed and we get stopped in our tracks because we look at the enormity of a problem. We go, well, I can't fix the whole thing. Why should I solve any of it? I think we need to take a cue here and say, what is my avenue? What is my avenue to eliminate or alleviate some of the suffering? What's my avenue to be uh, the hands and feet of God in a, in a present situation or in the midst of brokenness, even though I can't fix the whole thing? In presence, not with a T-S at the end, but a C-E at the end, your presence is really the greatest amount of service you can provide. If any of you have ever experienced the presence of a sitting friend when you had no answers for your life or your, I've had that person that just sat right next to me when I was looking at things I couldn't explain. When I was facing a world of uncertainty in my future and this you know, friend my age who at the time that it was happening to me had no real uh, world wisdom except enough to just sit there and take in the silence with me. And I'll always remember that some of the best ministry, personal ministry I've ever had in my life. You can't do that if you're not looking for the problem. You can't do that if you're not seeing the suffering of others. You can't do that if you're not willing to pursue them. And we can confess our brokenness to the only one who can heal us. We can take it to him because we've seen him in action. And as we do so, we learn to welcome thorough healing of our whole person, everything that's thoroughly infected in us. Even when it means, and it most assuredly will mean this, is that we will rehab our entire life around this healing. It won't be always instantaneous. We will wake up every day with some new challenge of, oh, that's right, my broken life used to do this. Now I've got this whole freedom over here. I forgot about this or I haven't wrapped my head or my heart around it. So as we learn to accept the healing that the Lord has given us, we have to take inventory. Lord, am I accepting all of your healing? Move me forward with, with faith and boldness to allow you to change all of me. And we'll learn to serve those who are broken to their core, even when they don't seem to appreciate our efforts, because most likely they won't, right? So we take the example of Jesus to do better, to do right, but we also take the ministry of Jesus to allow our hearts to heal because that's what he does. Would you stand? Let's close our time in prayers. We ask the worship team to lead us out with worship. God, I want to thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you, Father, for ministering to me uh, just as a kid, not even understanding how broken I was, just understanding that you were saving me from my sin and keeping me out of hell. And I had just no real concept for coming to you, but I know you changed me. And I know so many others in this room and those under the sound of my voice have, have allowed you to change them. You've gotten inside and, he, and healed the, the worst break of their souls. And Lord, as others are dealing with physical limitations and pains and discomforts and other sufferings, I pray that we would all take note of those things and seek to help seek to be present, but may it remind us, Lord, of how much you've healed within us because of our sin. Lord, you haven't promised to rescue us from all physical ailments this side of eternity, but you have told us that going through these times and these challenges will prepare our, our thirst and our hunger for bliss and rest in heaven. Open our eyes and give us faith for that day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.